So back in 2017, as you're looking ahead to the election in 2018 and then ultimately the election in 2020, you have a to-do list. And the to-do list includes what? Paper ballots. Oh, so close. So close. He was almost there. Well, well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, Eureka's, KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, in Rochester, New York on WRFZ, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today as we are now 50, count them, 50 days away from Inauguration Day on January 20. We are 35 days until Election Day in Georgia for the two critical U.S. Senate runoffs there to determine control of the entire U.S. Senate on January 5. We are but a mere 13 days until uh, the Electoral College casts its votes to finalize Election 2020 on December 14, and just one week away now from the statutory federal safe harbor deadline for resolving any election disputes for the Electoral College. Whether that is actually followed or not remains to be seen. That will be next Tuesday. Welcome to the broadcast. Uh, well, I got to tell you, I keep trying. I really do, Desi Doyen. Uh-huh. I keep trying to move on. But as Michael Corleone said, Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. That's it. They pull <laughs> me back in. Yeah, that's where so, we are. So, yes, we will move on from election 2020, I suspect, at some point, uh, at least a bit. Uh, but uh, as a matter of fact, in this show, we will. We will move to the Supreme Court hearing held on Monday as Donald Trump's DOJ attempts to push, uh, well, pretty much blatantly violate the Constitution by removing non-citizens from the census count as it is used for reapportionment of congressional 
uh, seats and state legislative seats for the next 10 years on his way out of office. We will get to that momentarily, I promise, with an expert on the topic to report back on how things went for Trump's DOJ at the high court on Monday. But first, yes, they keep pulling me back in. Now, we're all the way out here in California, but I'm pretty sure I was able to hear screaming all the way from the White House today, Desi (laughs) Doyen. Yes. Uh, All the way from here after this story from AP dropped just a few hours ago. Attorney General William Barr said Tuesday, according to AP, the Justice Department has not uncovered evidence of widespread voter fraud that would change the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. That would be Donald Trump's attorney general and top fixer, Bill Barr. His comments come despite Trump's repeated claims that the election was stolen and his refusal to concede his loss to Joe Biden. In an interview with the Associated Press, Barr said U.S. attorneys and FBI agents have been working to follow up specific complaints and information that they have received, but they have uncovered no evidence that would change the outcome of the election. To date, he told AP, we have not seen fraud on a scale that could have affected a different outcome in the election. The comments are especially direct coming from Barr, they write, who has been one of the president's most ardent allies. Well, he had been until now anyway. Uh, will he be fired before the end of the day <laughs> at this point, Des? Well, I that's a good question. I would think no, because he does still kind of protect Trump, but we'll see. We'll see. I, I wonder if he might be fired before the end of the show. Please keep an <laughs> eye on your iPhone alerts at this point. <laughs> Uh, Before the election, of course, Barr had repeatedly raised the notion that mail-in voter fraud was especially vulnerable uh, during the coronavirus pandemic as Americans feared going to polls and instead chose to vote by mail. Last month, Barr issued a wildly unusual, actually unprecedented directive to U.S. attorneys across the country, allowing them to pursue any, quote, substantial allegations of voting irregularities if they existed uh, before the election was certified, despite no evidence at the time of that proclamation of any widespread fraud. The memorandum gave prosecutors the ability to go around longstanding Justice Department policy that normally would prohibit such overt actions and investigations before an election was certified. Soon after he uh, issued that memo, the department's top elections crime official announced that he would be resigning from that position because of that memo. Of course, the Trump campaign uh, team, led by Rudy Giuliani, has been alleging widespread uh, conspiracies to defraud the vote by voters, by Democrats, to dump millions, millions of illegal ballots into the system. There is no evidence of any such ballots being uh, dumped into the system. They have filed multiple lawsuits in a whole bunch of battleground states, charging partisan poll watchers didn't have a clear enough view of uh, at, at polling sites in some locations, and therefore something illegal must have happened while they couldn't see it. 
course, those claims have been repeatedly and brutally debunked and dismissed, including by Republican court judges, including Republican judges appointed by Donald Trump himself, who have all ruled that all of these suits lacked any actual evidence of fraud. Nonetheless, as AP notes, and as we have, uh, local Republicans in some battleground states have followed Trump in making similarly unsupported claims about the election. The president has railed against the election in his tweets and in his interviews, though, as we noted yesterday, uh, none of his lawsuits actually provide any evidence of fraud. Most of them do not even mention fraud at all. They're charging other things, but not fraud, even though that's what Donald Trump is doing on Twitter and on Fox News. And yes, Donald Trump's own administration, including the Trump-appointed chief of the new Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, otherwise known as CISA, which was stood up by Congress and the president, this president as part of the Department of Homeland Security after concerns about foreign uh, interference in the uh, 2016 election, his own administration has said that the 2020 election was the most secure ever in American history. Now, whether that is true or not, well, we'll get to that in a second. But the uh, the issues Trump's campaign and his allies have pointed to problems with signatures on on mail in ballots or secrecy envelopes that were missing or uh, questions about postal marks on mail in ballots. Uh, all of that stuff is normal stuff. This is typical in every election. And frankly, uh, we have seen less, fewer problems in this past election than I have seen in election after election after election in the you know 20 years or so that I've been covering them. But uh, nonetheless, the Trump camp has requested federal probes into his uh, pretty weak claims. His attorney, Sidney Powell, has spun fictional tales as AP describes it, of election systems flipping votes, German servers storing U.S. voting information, and election software created in Venezuela, quote, at the direction of Hugo Chavez, the late Venezuelan president who died in 2013. Now, I wonder where she got that idea. <laughs> in any event, uh, Paul has since been, uh, she got it from me at Bradblog. That's I, I guess I have to say that 10 Just years ago, case, yes. story that I wrote many. Uh, but, uh, uh, of course, I did not say anything like what she has turned it into. Nonetheless, uh, Powell has uh, since been removed from Trump's legal team, sort of, after an interview in which she threatened to, quote, blow up Georgia with a, quote, biblical court filing. Well, that biblical court filing, two of them, in fact, one in Georgia, one in Michigan as well, they were filed over the weekend, and frankly, they are laughable, to say the least, including typos, broken sentences that make no sense. The very first line of the document misspells the word district twice in two different ways, as in the lawsuit being filed in district court. And the uh, Destroycoisit of Georgia. <laughs> it's remarkable they didn't even bother to run a spell check. The uh, Michigan suit has its type uh, justified throughout in a way that removes all the spaces from complete sentences. So all the words are jammed together. The uh, substance and the evidence for her claims, by the way, is no more impressive. But anyway, Bill Barr... 
uh, did not mention Sidney Powell specifically, but he said, quote, there has been one assertion that would be systemic fraud, and that would be the claim that machines were programmed essentially to skew the election results. And the DHS and DOJ, he said, have looked into that. And so far, we haven't seen anything to substantiate that. That coming from Bill Barr, Donald Trump's attorney general. Which brings us to Chris Krebs. That is Trump's director of the new Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA. And something that I wanted to get to on yesterday's show uh, as my uh, phone and email and Twitter and everything else started lighting up uh, after 60 Minutes aired on Sunday night uh, with an interview with Krebs, who was, of course, fired by Donald Trump shortly after he and a whole bunch of other federal government uh, agencies and officials uh, involved in this uh, in the cybersecurity community, uh, as well as state and local officials, election officials, and yes, some private voting system vendors, after they all declared that the 2020 election was the, quote, most secure in American history. As you might expect, I am somewhat skeptical of that claim, especially with voting machine vendors uh, with a stake in that making that argument, taking part in that declaration. But for now, here is what caught my attention and a number of the people who mentioned it to me uh, since this interview aired on 60 Minutes on Sunday. Krebs is a he's a lifelong Republican and has been. To his credit, tirelessly debunking all sorts of phony and or evidence free election fraud claims both before and since the election claims, by the way, mostly led by the president of the United States himself, which is naturally why he eventually fired Chris Krebs. But on Sunday night, Krebs spoke to 60 Minutes Scott Pelley about why he believes the 2020 election was so secure, in his opinion. After which I started receiving all these phone calls and emails and so forth, mostly from folks who may not have listened closely enough to what Krebs actually said. We spent something on the order of three and a half years of gaming out every possible scenario for how a foreign actor could interfere with an election. Countless, countless scenarios. So back in 2017, as you're looking ahead to the election in 2018 and then ultimately the election in 2020, you have a to-do list. And the to-do list includes what? Paper ballots. Paper ballots give you the ability to audit, to go back and check the tape and make sure that you got the count right. And that's really one of the keys to success for a secure 2020 election. That gives you the ability to prove that there was no malicious algorithm or hacked software that adjusted the tally of the vote. Okay, so he was really close. He He was was really close. And people heard paper ballots and they're like, oh, my God, that's what Brad Friedman has been calling for for 20 years when it comes to election security. So he must be delighted to hear that on 60 Minutes. Eh, Well, okay, sort of delighted. What Krebs said there is mostly true, but not really. A hand-marked paper ballot, not just a paper ballot, but a hand-marked paper ballot does tell you how people meant to vote, presuming the 
Hand-marked paper ballot has a secure chain of custody and all of that, but we can know from a hand-marked paper ballot how people voted. A computer-marked paper ballot, however, does not tell you how people voted, or at least you can't know if it's telling you how people voted. There's no way to know if the computer-printed paper summary actually represents the intent of any voter. These paper summaries that are printed out from a, uh, a, a touchscreen voting system. And why can't we know if that paper ballot, that computer marked paper ballot actually represents the will of the voter? Well, because studies have shown time and again that the vast majority of voters do not bother to check their computer printouts on such systems. And in fact, that 93%, 93% of voters don't notice when that computer has changed one of their votes on the computer-marked paper ballot. So after an election, you have no idea if that computer-marked ballot actually represents the intent of any voter. Now, you may think it does, but remember, elections are not just about convincing the winner and their supporters that they have won. Elections are also about making sure that the loser and their supporters also know that they have lost, that they can know that the election was tallied as per every voter's intent and that they got fewer voters than the winners did. That is one of the problems that we are having right now. Even a 100% secure election, if there was no fraud, no uh, flipping of votes by the voting machines, if that 100% secure election cannot be known by the public to have been 100% secure, well, that can result in exactly what we are seeing right now. With all of these questions about all of these voting machines and these voting machine companies, as we're seeing right now, especially in states like Georgia, where if you have heard this show for any amount of time over the past several years, <laughs> there's a pretty good chance that, you know, we have been covering Georgia very closely due to their new Dominion voting system, touchscreen voting machines that Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, a Republican there, forced all voters to use at the polls in the entire state, which print out ballot summaries that are 100% unverifiable at this point now that the election is over. And yet Krebs, a Republican who has done a, an admirable job debunking a whole lot of Trump's false claims before he was fired for it, he does not seem to understand this nuance as he cites, of all places, Georgia and their computer-marked paper ballots as reason to believe that the election could not have been stolen there. And just look at what happened in Georgia. Georgia has machines that tabulate the vote. They then held a hand recount, and the outcome was consistent with the machine vote. And that tells you what? That tells you that there was no manipulation of the vote on the machine count side. And so that pretty thoroughly, in my opinion, debunks some of these sensational claims out there that I've called nonsense and a hoax, that there is some hacking of these election uh, vendors and their software and their systems across the country. It's, it's just, it's nonsense. Now, I don't know 
if any of these uh, voting machines, uh, the software and so forth across the country was hacked or not. He says it was not. Fine. That said, if his evidence is the fact that computer marked paper ballots in Georgia matched the, the tally when they were counted by another computer and that that tells us that the election was all legit, he is just simply wrong on those facts. And I don't think he means to be wrong. I think he's a good guy. I'm grateful that he has done what he has done. But counting computer marked paper ballots by hand and finding that they match with the computer tabulation of those same ballots does not, in fact, tell us that the election was legitimate. I hate to say it, but it's true. And that's why I have been arguing against those systems for so long. And that's why you've been arguing for hand-marked paper ballots for all voters with assistive devices for those people Correct. who need them. Because that is the only way after an election to ensure that a voter has verified their selection. So if you care about this stuff, Republicans, if you are concerned that somebody may have hacked the election, and yes, you have reason to in some of these places, given the systems that they foolishly use, like in Georgia. If you are actually concerned about that, you can join me uh, for my call that is still pinned to the top of my Twitter account, which is the Brad blog, calling on Republicans to join me in demanding hand-marked paper ballots for use in the critical Georgia U.S. Senate runoffs that are coming up on January 5 to determine control of the Senate for the next two years, control of the U.S. Senate. If we have hand-marked paper ballots, we can know that that's how the voter intended to vote. And by the way, if we publicly hand-count them instead of using computers, we can know that the count has been uh, accurately recorded. Now, Donald Trump threw another Twitter fit on Sunday night after uh, Krebs was on 60 Minutes. He tweeted, 60 Minutes never asked us for comment about their ridiculous one-sided story on election security, which is an international joke. He said the election was, quote, probably our least secure ever. <laughs> of course, he has no evidence for that either. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and I have minor disagreements with Krebs on on this, as I've as I've explained there. Uh, I, I just wish that he understood elections better. But that's a far cry from what Krebs, what we all heard yesterday from Joe DeGeneva, a Fox News TV lawyer. So, yes, he's also one of Trump's personal attorneys uh, who is on uh, Trump's pretend election fraud challenging team, which has so far unsuccessfully been challenging the election results all over the country. DeGeneva. An attorney to the president of the United States and a member of the bar, for Christ's sake, he was on a radio show on Monday. He said this about Chris Krebs. Anybody who thinks that this election went well, like that idiot Krebs, who used to be the head of cyber. Oh, yeah, the guy that was DHS, on 60 Minutes guy, last night. That guy is a class A moron. He should be drawn and quartered, taken out at dawn and shot. Uh, he should be shot? Wow. Really, Joe? You, you think that's appropriate? You are an attorney. Now, there have been calls for DeGeneva to be disbarred in, uh, in I think he's in the D.C. bar at this point. He should be. We'll see where that goes. But if anyone who says there wasn't fraud should be shot, does that mean 
Bill Barr, the attorney general, should now be drawn and quartered and taken out at dawn and shot also now, Joe DeGeneva? This is where we are. Now, Krebs, for the record, he was asked about DeGeneva's comments this morning on NBC's Today Show, and he made pretty clear that he is now ready to take legal action uh, against what amounts to little less, nothing less than a threat, it seems to me. A death threat on the public airwaves. Sending yeah. out a message to Trump supporters that this man should be shot by an attorney. So, yes, uh, this is where we are. This could get very dangerous, I, I hate to say, in the days ahead, because we are currently governed by idiots. I hope that changes on January 20. We will see. Speaking of being governed by idiots, <laughs> it seems that even Donald Trump's stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court is not buying Trump's latest argument on how to game the census and the congressional reapportionment process on, on Trump's way out the door. Dan Vicuña from one of the groups that successfully sued against Trump's executive memorandum that would exclude non-citizens from upcoming congressional apportionment and redistricting. Uh, his case was uh, their case was heard before the Supreme Court this week. He will join us next to discuss how that went on Monday for the president of the United States at the U.S. Supreme Court. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The addition of a question about citizenship on the constitutionally mandated decennial U.S. Census was blocked by the U.S. Supreme Court last year. But that did not stop Donald Trump in his effort to work around the specific words of the Constitution, which mandates the U.S. Census determine the, quote, whole number of persons in each state for use in apportionment of congressional seats every 10 years. In July of 2019, just after SCOTUS blocked his attempt to add that question about citizenship to the census, Donald Trump ordered during a White House ceremony all federal agencies to collect data on the, quote, voter eligibility of persons in the U.S. We will be able to ensure the 2020 census generates an accurate count of how many citizens, non-citizens, and illegal aliens are in the United States of America. Not too much to ask. This will greatly inform a wide array of public policy decisions. This information is also relevant to administering our elections. Some states may want to draw state and local legislative districts based upon the voter-eligible population. Indeed, the same day the Supreme Court handed down the census decision, it also said it would not review certain types of districting decisions 
which could encourage states to make such decisions based on voter eligibility. That was July of 2019. In July of this year, 2020, Trump issued an executive memorandum for the Secretary of Commerce to exclude undocumented immigrants from the population count when apportioning U.S. House seats among the states on the basis that, according to his memo, quote, the Constitution does not specifically define which persons must be included in the apportionment base. That, his memo argued, is a decision left to the President of the United States. He ordered Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross to, quote, obtain accurate data on the number of citizens, non-citizens, and illegal aliens in the country, unquote. Though it's unclear exactly where that accurate data would come from, if not from the last, uh, the latest U.S. Census, which is being completed this year. Trump then ordered, quote, for the purpose of the reapportionment of representatives following the 2020 census, it is the policy of the United States to exclude from the apportionment base aliens who are not in a lawful immigration status under the Immigration and Nationality Act. Excluding these illegal aliens, he wrote, from the apportionment base is more consonant with the principles of representative democracy underpinning our system of government. Well, as the past month has shown since the presidential election, you know how much Donald Trump respects the principles of representative democracy underpinning our system of government. Nonetheless, his order was immediately uh, challenged in courts by immigrant rights groups and others charging discrimination that would disproportionately shift political power and federally allocated resources from urban immigrant heavy cities and towns to more rural white and, yes, Republican leaning jurisdictions, as the GOP has been attempting to do for years. Of the four lower federal courts that have weighed in on this policy as it has been uh, challenged, according to Common Cause's Gerrymander Gazette on Monday, only one of those courts stopped short of calling Trump's memo illegal. One of the three courts that struck it down also said the policy was blatantly unconstitutional. Nina Perales, vice president of litigation for the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, summed up the Trump administration's goal as a, quote, not at all disguised attempt to shift power away from Latino voters. If implemented, she argues, this discriminatory policy would create huge differences in population between congressional districts in a way that intentionally dilutes the power of communities with relatively high numbers of immigrants. The legal challenges, which Trump largely lost in every lower federal court, is now titled Trump v. New York. And on Monday, it was heard during oral argument before the GOP's stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court. In a statement on Monday, after the hearing, Kathy Fong, the National Redistricting Director at Common Cause, one of the pro-immigrant good government groups that has challenged the president's memorandum, called on the court to, quote, act before the dagger is in the heart of our Constitution, arguing that the administration has made its intentions to erase millions of people from the census and has engaged in multiple steps to advance its plot to sabotage the census count. She added that we are counting on the Supreme Court to protect our most vulnerable families and our Constitution. But is it a good idea 
to count on this Supreme Court for much of anything. Joining us now to discuss what this policy could mean if ultimately enacted and how things went before the high court on Monday in what seems to have been a surprisingly tough argument for the Department of Justice to make, arguing on behalf of the Trump administration, is Dan Vicuña. He's the National Redistricting Manager at Common Cause. Oh, Mr. Vicuña, it has been a while, but welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, so, uh, first, have I adequately described the administration's position here and the stakes of this question that is now in the hands of, uh, of SCOTUS, on which Trump has jammed through three new justices of his own over the past four years? Yeah, I mean, I think you summarized it nicely, having uh, you know, having been uh, rejected in its uh, attempt to um, scare, I think, Latino and immigrants, uh, Latinos and immigrants living mm-hmm. um, in the United States through a citizenship question on the census. Uh, you know that that was struck down, as you mentioned. They mm-hmm. are taking an alternative route to to sort of uh, attack directly uh, the political power of Latinos of heavily uh, immigrant cities of. Uh, big cities that tend to lean democratic um, through a blatantly unconstitutional attempt to exclude undocumented immigrants um, from the count. So, yeah, I think you summed it up nicely. Uh, As noted, the Constitution mandates a decennial census that enumerates the, quote, whole number of persons in each state for purposes of congressional apportionment. The statutes passed by Congress governing the census apportionment process reaffirm that understanding, as Common Cause noted in its announcement yesterday. But the Trump administration argues that it is up to the president uh, as to what the definition of whole number of persons is when giving apportionment data to to Congress. And in fact, they argue that people like tourists and, you know, uh, uh, temporary travelers are not included in that count. So why do they have to count undocumented immigrants or those whose status in the country is unknown while they await asylum hearings and so forth? Uh, That's the argument the administration is making. Did that argument hold up before the justices on Monday at the Supreme Court? I think it's found a very a tough audience, and, and from some surprising corners of the Supreme Court. I mean, I think, unsurprisingly, you know, the the more liberal justices uh, were uh, you know, willing to adhere to the plain language of the Constitution and uh, to centuries of precedent on mm-hmm. what it means to for for the census who who gets counted, and that's everybody, mm-hmm. um, except for you know, you mentioned there are very very limited categories of sort of diplomats. And tourists, but but otherwise, you know, citizenship status has never been used um, as a determining factor in whether a person will be counted. But you know, so you know, you did see some skepticism from you know some unsurprising categories, you know, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, uh, um, but but in addition to that, you know, Justice Kavanaugh mm-hmm. um, and Justice uh, uh, Coney Barrett, um, you know, the two recent uh, Trump appointees who. You know, I think the president is counting on to back him up in all ways, having no understanding of separation of powers or respect for it. Um, you know, think he thinks he assumes that his appointees will, uh, you know, have his back. But uh, they were very skeptical. Yeah. Um, I think they they looked at uh, you know the fact that uh, this is simply never the, been the way we've uh, sliced and diced the country to say that. Uh, immigration status has any role in whether you are counted. It's about whether you live in the United States. Um, So, yeah, it was a pleasant surprise to see them asking appropriately skeptical questions 
about a blatantly unconstitutional policy. Yeah, that was encouraging. Uh, in that audio clip, Dan, from uh, July of 2019 that I played there at the top, Trump describes the voter-eligible population. Is that actually a thing, or, or did he uh, pretty much make that up? And if we're only going to include the voter-eligible population in regards to apportionment and, and redistricting, does that include under his definition, uh, for example, children under 18 who are decidedly not voter eligible. Yeah, I mean, you know, the question of of whether to give you know, all people um, representation, regardless of their ability to vote, um, has come up throughout the entirety of our history. It has, um, you know, some dark periods, of course, where uh, you looked at sort of counting only three-fifths of enslaved persons in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, ever since, in particular, since the 14th Amendment, um, we count everybody living in an area for the purposes of representation, because, you know, the decisions of our elected officials, whether a person can vote for them or not, impacts that person. So that includes citizens, non-citizens, uh, adults who are voting, who are uh, eligible to vote or not eligible to mm-hmm. vote, children who are clearly not eligible to vote. It's a principle of this country now that um, all people uh, deserve representation because the gov- government actions impact all people. Um, so it is uh, fairly unprecedented um, in, in recent history to exclude really anybody, but um, uh, you're seeing now uh, some states start to pick up on this idea. Uh, we, For the first time, um, uh, the state of Missouri Mm-hmm. Um, placed some uh, a measure on the ballot just uh, you know this past election um, to use uh, voter eligibility as the the count for mm-hmm. state legislative districts. I think they have some concerns about whether they can do it for congressional districts, which is why they probably didn't try. Uh, but at least for the purposes of drawing state legislative districts, they they are seeking to exclude um, people who are not eligible to vote. And we you know we think that uh, you know, I think that's clear, clearly a, an attempt to target immigrants in Missouri. Um, but it also could target children um, as well to exclude mm-hmm. them as well. So um, I, I think some people are taking the, the mantle, uh, you know, sort of and running with it um, of this president's idea that uh, not everyone counts in our democracy. Did that uh, measure in Missouri actually pass on November third? Yeah, it did. That, you no. know, it was a really it was an interesting, incredibly deceptive campaign. So in 2018, reformers, friend, you know, friends of ours, mm-hmm. attempted to implement some some government ethics, some transparency. Uh, and and it, most importantly, uh, or some of the strongest measures were about attacking gerrymandering to create some some nonpartisan standard. Mm-hmm. Um, the legislature was, of course, up in arms because this took away some of their power to draw districts in the state. So they placed a very deceptive measure, which made some nominal changes um, to campaign finance and ethics rules. Um, that and then they, uh, but but the, the primary purpose of the legislature's 2020 effort was to reverse uh, those anti-gerrymandering provisions passed a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So they engaged in this very deceptive campaign, um, centering the minor changes to campaign finance and ethics rules, um, virtually ignoring um, efforts uh, to uh, you know, give themselves more mm-hmm. power to gerrymander, except when they were making racist appeals to uh, to to rural white voters. And they, you know, they in that way they tended to center some of the their attempts to exclude immigrants. Uh, from the count, uh, but otherwise tried to make it uh, deceptively about some other thing, uh, and it it narrowly passed. So, mm. um, I, you know, I'm sure that we and our and our friends in Missouri will see them in court on on that exclusion uh, measure. But um, you know, it's now an idea that's got some legs. Yeah. 
<sighs> From what I've been able to read of the oral argument on Monday, Dan, the uh, the DOJ d- did not even seem to know how many numbers they were actually talking about excluding from the count uh, at, at the uh, hearing, uh, leading to some frustration from even the course right wing members. Is that because the administration is so inept that they don't actually know what these numbers are at this point? Or is it because they're trying to hide those numbers from the court? And I guess the third question is, where do these numbers even come from if they uh, were uh, forced to uh, leave off the citizenship question from the census? Well, the administration's lawyers are doing, you know, kind of a a strange, or sort of dancing a strange dance, which is that, you know, the the president's memo very clearly states what the president wants, which is to exclude every undocumented person living in the United States, Mm -hmm. you know, undocumented people who contribute, uh, you know, a billion dollars to the economy, Mm -hmm. who who pay taxes on, on, you know, things that they may never see, Mm -hmm. Social Security and others. Um, and what you know that is the goal of the president's memo to exclude all of them. Now, what the president's attorneys are going into court and saying is that, well, we're, we're going to only do this, you know, uh, within the strictures of what's allowable by law. Uh, so, for that reason, you shouldn't even rule on this case. Now, there's no no need to address the plaintiff's challenge because we don't exactly know how we're going to implement um, <laughs> the, this the president's goals, even though the president states them very clearly. So you should punt, which is what happened in Common Causes Challenge. We were the one district court case with a couple of Trump appointees on our panel mm-hmm. that, that decided to kick the can down the road and um, say that this case is not yet ripe to be heard. Um, so wh- that's what the, the president's lawyers are attempting to do with the Supreme Court, to say no need to rule here. Um, you know, what Dale Ho, the ACLU attorney who so uh, ably represented an uh, immigrants' rights group in this case, indicated was that, uh, you know, one, you made the point that I made, which is that the president's goal here is very clear. Um, but even if there was some subset of people that the president seeks to exclude, um, some smaller group of the immigrant population, maybe those in ICE detention or some other some other d- uh, number, mm-hmm. uh, but that could still make a significant difference. Uh, in the last redis- um, cycle, census cycle, excuse me, um, Utah and North Carolina were both were two states on the border, of, of getting or losing a congressional seat, mm-hmm. and on the basis of just about tens of thousands of people, that were uh, th- that was all the difference that was needed for North Carolina to lose that and for Utah to gain one. So, um, even the smallest of margin makes a difference. Yeah, I, which you know raises the question. I mean, if the president is able to exclude what could be several million from the the count, wouldn't that cost? multiple house states uh house seats in the in in congress including you know so-called red states like utah and texas and so forth it's it seems somewhat surprising that republicans in states like that would uh would be supporting this measure no yeah i think you know it's certainly going to cost you know uh, california here you know blue state so that's that's sort of exactly what the administration was hoping for right Um, it could also cost texas seats as you indicated i think what what Texas legislators and sort of political leaders in the state are counting on is that their legislatively controlled redistricting process will, uh, you know, be they'll be able to gerrymander any possible advantage, uh, you know, disadvantage that um, you know, Republicans may see to a losing seat. They could be gerrymandered away uh, to squeeze more Republican mm-hmm. seats out of whatever districts they have. So I think you know that may be what they're they consider their saving grace. But I mean, yeah, this is it has huge ramifications for. 
uh, you know, millions of people losing representation around the country. I have become tremendously confused, Dan, i got to admit, uh, by the timelines for all of this since they have changed and then mm-hmm. been challenged and they've yeah. tried to change them again unsuccessfully, I think, uh, in regard to when the census must be completed and the apportionment data for redistricting must then be handed over to Congress. What is the timeline as we know it right now. And uh, if Joe Biden is to be sworn in on January 20th, as currently appears to be a near certainty, is all of this moot because it would all end up falling to a new administration anyway who could change the policy just as easily as as Trump was able to change the policy? It could be. Um, Yeah. So the, the current requirement is for the Census Bureau to send over data to the president by December 31st of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, they have already indicated, although we haven't seen an official announcement about when they when they think they will be able to complete the processing of data, mm-hmm. they have strong, really, they've indicated that December 31st is very unlikely. Um, one estimate that's been in the reporting in the New York Times and Washington Post is that you could see anywhere between January 26th to, to sort of to the beginning of February, which would, in fact, as you mentioned, put it in the hands of a President Biden. Um, that uh, would be your indication of why elections matter. Uh, <laughs> yes. the, there, there's, there's certainly there, there's no doubt that a that President Biden, um, after inaugurated, will immediately reverse this policy and has no interest in excluding undocumented immigrants. Um, so that remains to be seen. Uh, the way it looks now, it seems like there's a decent possibility this will, in fact, be moot. Um, but you know, I, I, obviously, at the administration has a significant interest in enforcing the hand of the Census Bureau. Um, so hopefully, you know, that's not going to happen. But, uh, you know, it's, we're sort of in a wait-and-see mode right now. And, and, and when you say that the uh, uh, the administration would like the Supreme Court to basically kick the can down the road here to punt on this, to not make a decision on this, is, that, is their argument basically, uh, let's worry about this later, after we do it, after we uh, manipulate the data in our own way, and then we'll see if it's a problem, and then you can come back and challenge it? Is that sort of what they're arguing at this point? Yeah, that's basically it. They're saying, look, let the president do what he wants. Let him uh, you know, send over the portion of numbers that, that um, exclude millions of people, um, and then, then there can be a post-apportionment challenge. We can relitigate all of this. Um, you know, the problem with that is that, you know, states are starting to get into their redistricting processes. Like mm-hmm. this is, you know, to, you know, we know what the president wants to do now. Right. Three district courts, um, you know, identified it clearly and said it was unconstitutional. There, there's no reason for them to punt. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that is the goal of the administration to make it um, sort of so unwieldy to, to undo down the road or unscramble the egg, as mm-hmm. uh, the chief justice said in, in oral arguments. Right. Um, uh, that uh, you know, I think that would put them in a, in a sort of a procedural advantage, to, you know, the administration to to not deal with this now. So we're you know we're hopeful that uh, the Supreme Court will just will rule now, rule quickly, mm-hmm. um, identify this as a blatantly unconstitutional as we know it to be, and and so we can all kind of get on with a, a fair apportionment. And Supreme Court rulings on cases uh, that they actually hear like this are not usually uh, decided or, or the opinions released until June or so. This opinion would have to come much sooner than that, I presume, uh, to in order to take effect before apportionment begins to happen earlier, uh, early next year. Uh, correct? If, if that's correct, then when would you expect an opinion in this matter from SCOTUS? They wouldn't wait till June, right? Right. I mean, you do see um, in, in kind of the most controversial opinions that I think require the most deliberation and argument among the justices, uh, but are not necessarily on a tight timetable. 
they they will wait until nearly the end of the of the term in June. But mm-hmm. um, you know, in cases that require you know, quicker action, and this is uh, I think one of them, um, yeah, I think we're very likely to see a decision much sooner. Dan Vicuña, I know that reading tea leaves from oral argument uh, before the Supreme Court is a risky business, but did it appear to you that there are five justices who are willing to go along with the administration on this at this point? It seems difficult to... I, 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 I don't see it, mm-hmm. um, you know, considering the skepticism of even you know, conservative Trump appointees uh, that, that, that violating the plain language of the Constitution of federal law is... is going to be uh, going to be kosher um, i just it's, it's hard to imagine but you know you never know because sometimes the, the justices will use this period to you know get some questions answered but uh, where they're going is sort of slightly different um so it, you know, it's hard to say but i mean I don't, I don't think it looks great for the administration i'm going to take those words i don't think it looks great for the administration <laughs> And I'm going to run with that because I could use all the <laughs> all right. I'd like to feel uh, better about anything I can these days. Dan Vicuña is the National Redistricting Manager for Common Cause. You can find them and uh, specifically their redistricting work at commoncause.org slash redistricting. You can also find them on the Twitter at on the Twitters at Common Cause. And you can find Dan on the Twitters as well at Dan Vicuña. Always great talking with you, my friend. Uh, we'll probably be doing it again soon as this moves forward. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Thank you, Dan. Okay, quick break, and we are back. Hey, Desi Doyen is here Yay. with a Green News report yep. uh, with some very bad news as usual, uh-huh. but <laughs> some really good news from, of all people, Donald Trump and his administration. What? Yep. It must be a mistake. That's <laughs> next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com/donate. That's bradblog.com/donate. And thanks. So you know, Des, I was I was gonna I was about to say that <laughs> in fifty days we won't have to talk about Donald Trump in the Green News Report anymore. Mm, I wish that were true, but I don't think it's going to be. I suspect it won't be once we find out the kind of damage that he has actually wrought inside many of these agencies. And oh, of yeah. course, for the climate writ large, as we discuss in our latest Green News Report. The Army Corps of Engineers has Denied a permit to the Pebble Mine, a controversial project in a remote part of Alaska that could have contaminated the world's largest salmon fishery. Trump administration denies controversial Pebble Mine in Alaska. Good. But Trump EPA also lets polluting industries off the hook for toxic waste while his interior department finalizes bird killing rule. Not as good. Plus, Bank of America ditches fossil fuel projects in the fragile Arctic. All 
of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Trump thinks that if he sells off enough of America, there won't be anything left for Joe Biden to be president of. Here's the key, Joe. You've got the White House, you've got the sidewalk, and everything else belongs to Exxon. Oh, like it doesn't already. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, Donald Trump did something good, did one thing good before leaving office, nixing the pebble mine up I in Alaska. Know. It's a pretty big deal. Yes, it is. But we'll have more on that in a moment. I look forward to it. First, in Australia, an early spring heat wave down under is an ominous warning of the upcoming bushfire season in the wake of last year's record deadly bushfires intensified by record-breaking heat waves. Over the weekend, parts of Australia, including Sydney, sweltered through the hottest November night ever recorded, with daytime records in New South Wales hitting 115 degrees Mm. in spring. It's also the official end of the historic 2020 Atlantic hurricane season, which delivered a record-shattering 30 named tropical storms, forcing forecasters to dig into the Greek alphabet for storm names after running out of English names, all of it fueled by extremely warm ocean waters caused by man-made climate change. Does the climate know that the hurricane season is over? No, it does not. More storms could still form, so nobody should relax just yet. Oh, thank God. The Trump administration is is racing to finish rollbacks of key environmental protections before they get shoved out the door, like finalizing the weakening of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act so that companies will no longer be held accountable for causing accidental deaths to migratory birds. The Fish and Wildlife Service admits that companies will be less likely to take steps to prevent harm to birds if they face no legal liability for it. That will lead to more bird deaths. The rule primarily benefits the oil industry, which kills exponentially more birds than wind farms. Remember when uh, Donald Trump would go out to all his rallies and pretend to be all sad about birds that were killed by wind farms? Yeah. Yeah, that was cute. The public has only 30 days to comment on this rule. I'm against it. <laughs> at regulations.gov. Oh. And the Trump Environmental Protection Agency says it will no longer require oil and gas, coal, chemical, and mining companies to purchase insurance to cover their major spills and accidents. Critics say the finalized rule will add to the growing list of toxic Superfund sites, forcing taxpayers to foot the bill for cleanup, and that it also poses the greatest risk to communities of color and low-income communities that are most likely to live next to polluting industries. How hard will it be for the Biden administration? administration to turn back finalized rules. Finalized rules can take a very long time to turn back, but that's unless Democrats win control of the U.S. Senate in the two Georgia runoff elections on January 5th under a law that allows Congress to repeal last-minute administration rules. But they would have to have the majority in both the House and Senate to be able to do that. Yes, that's correct. You hear that, Georgia? Some good news. On Monday, Bank of America announced it will stop providing project financing for oil and gas exploration in the fragile Arctic 
Arctic as well. With B of A's announcement, all of the big six banks in the United States have now all ruled out funding for drilling in the Arctic. But the bad news is the Trump administration has proposed a new rule that would force banks to finance fossil fuel projects. Yeah, good luck with that. They're in there for another 50 days. They do not have time to finalize any such rules like that. The rule would literally bar financial institutions from refusing to lend to the fossil fuel industry. Whatever. Goodbye. The Hill reports that Trump's new proposal is divisive among conservatives because it pits advocates for fossil fuels at any cost against so-called free market advocates who call it government overreach to tell banks where to invest. Oh, now they're concerned about government overreach. Finally, there is one really good thing that Trump has done on his way out. After a 15-year contentious battle with Native American tribes and conservation organizations, the Army Corps of Engineers denied a crucial permit for Alaska's controversial pebble mine, calling it, quote, contrary to the public interest under the Clean Water Act. The massive proposed gold and copper mine would have decimated one of the world's most prolific wild salmon fisheries in Bristol Bay, Alaska, which brings in billions in revenue. The denial follows recent opposition from Donald Trump Jr. and Mm. other key conservatives who pressed Trump to reject it. Good. We'll take it. Thank you, Donald Trump. Now beat it. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Hit the road, Jack. Don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. Hit the road, Jack. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Beat it, loser. (laughs) Nobody wants you here anymore. Get going. Uh, But, uh, hey, he finally did something good, Donald Trump did. Yeah. Finally. It only took four years. Right, and it wasn't based on any science or any actual policy or any actual thing that's good for the environment. It was based on individuals, uh, you know, lobbying him directly. Yeah, because his son wanted it for whatever reason. I will take it. We'll take what we can get. Exactly. Uh, By the way, you said down in Florida they were celebrating the end of uh, (laughs) hurricane season. Yes, Florida Keys residents, uh, after this record-setting Atlantic hurricane season, they um, they burned hurricane. Hurricane warning flags yeah. <laughs> to mark the official end of the season. That's fun. I hope they don't still need them this season. <laughs> Tell me about it. I don't think the climate looks at the calendar. Oh, November 30th? That's it. We're done for the year. No, they do not. We and uh, yeah, happens. so the National Hurricane Center is watching another developing storm. Of course they are. <laughs> brother. All right, we got to get out. Thanks to uh, my guest today, Dan Vicuña of Common Cause, to Desi Doyen, our producer as ever, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com or your favorite podcast site. That is all thanks to those of you who support our efforts by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves as long as we can stand it and as long as you can stand us. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. I'll see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.